Welcome to worship here at Chapel Street Church, South Street Campus. So glad to have you here. Just a couple of reminders before we begin. First, next Sunday is Christmas Eve, and it's a big weekend here at Chapel Street. As you may know, we have four different campuses, and that weekend we will have 14 different services from Saturday through Sunday. Uh, Here at South Street, we have three services planned next Sunday, 9 a.m., and then 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., and they'll be all the same except for the choir will sing in the early service at 9 a.m., and we'll have an instrumental ensemble later in the day, Uh, but all the services will be pretty much the same, but if you're traveling and need to go to a service on Saturday night, we have a couple of campuses that have those services, too. There are cards out in the lobby. You can pick up all those times if if that serves your family well. And then the weekend after that, of course, is New Year's Eve uh, on December 31st. Uh, most of our, our campuses will be online only, but we will be in person here, 9 a.m. here at South Street for a worship service, so you can plan on being here then. And finally, our carol sing is today. Finally, it's here, 3 p.m. this afternoon. Hope you're planning on coming. Uh, the cookies are already arriving in buckets and gobs in the kitchen. Um, I couldn't stay around there too long or else I was going to get started. So if you still have cookies to bring, please do bring them uh, this afternoon, a little bit before 3 o'clock, take them down to the kitchen area and they'll make sure they're all set up uh, and we'll be decorating a little later today at 1130, although it may be done by then, they're working in there right now. So I look forward to seeing you this afternoon for our carol sing at 3 p.m. And now we'll have Mark and Wendy Wooten who will light our third Advent candle. Good morning. Today's Advent theme is joy, which is repeated throughout the book of Isaiah. How we long to find true joy in this world. Sorrow and sadness threaten to overwhelm us. When you come to save us, our joy will be unspeakable. We will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Through you, O Lord, we will find the meaning of real joy. Come, Emmanuel, come. As we pause in our worship for our time of prayer, let me mention um, again to you several people and concerns that we have, some we've prayed for over the past few weeks, some uh, you might just be hearing about today, but remind you to keep praying for Bob Coster, who's recovering from hip surgery. Uh, I think he's in rehab now. I'm not sure exactly where, but continue to pray for Claudia as all kinds of decisions are made there. For Laura Chavez, our director of Chapel Street Kids here at South Street, who's uh, still uh, homebound as he recovers from an illness. Our Gustafson's recovering from hip surgery. We pray, continue to pray for B. Schulenberg with the loss of Gordon and as she adjusts to a new living situation. Betty Fernandez is recovering at home uh, and Uh, Elise West, we continue to pray for her and the Stevens Home Ministry as that uh, physical building was destroyed a couple of weeks ago in Ukraine. And uh, Elise is in Florida, I believe. All the young men are safe, but we're praying for that whole ministry uh, going forward. So let's bow in prayer and lift up these people and these ministries. Lord Jesus, uh, anthem sung beautifully by our choir moments ago, reminds us that with your birth come tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Lord, we know that at this time of year, um, our whole culture celebrates, and maybe our whole culture doesn't celebrate the center of the story, 
but they celebrate with joy. And there's uh, families look forward to getting together, and there's mealtimes and cookies and gifts and lights. We do celebrate, and so for those of us for whom this is a season of blessing, we give you our thanksgiving, and we want to celebrate with joy. But comfort is your gift to us as well, um, because we know that even though the season is a season of joy, it can be painful or lonely for many. And the people I've just mentioned, the people that we're aware of, some we haven't even named, those who struggle today with illness or recovery from surgery or the loss of a loved one, or those who are unable to attend worship in person any longer due to the care of a spouse or some other issue, um, we just ask for your comfort, that you would be their source of comfort by your presence and through your spirit, that, and that, Lord, even uh, in their sorrow or even in their loss or even sometimes pain, that you would also be a source of joy for them, a joy that comes from the hope that we have that because of your coming into this world and because of your gift of your Son to us, the gift of salvation, we have great hope in not just this life but in the life to come. So be our source both of comfort and joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of our Serve the World partners for the last several years is a ministry called Naomi's House that ministers to women who are in the process of being rescued from the human trafficking industry right here in our local area. And our media team has put together the story of just one of those women. Her name is Becky. So take a watch. When you ask how trafficking became a part of my life, its tentacles was digging deep into my life before I even realized what it was. There was nothing ingrained in me in my childhood for you're better than this or you're worthy. I never really knew about the worth of God and how God feels about his daughters. The way I understood sex as a teenager and as a young person is there's not a deeper meaning to it. We're just seeking outside of ourselves to fill a void. I had lost my virginity to a man who was much older than me, and then I started using drugs shortly thereafter, and it was my family's drugs. That was my crutch to use drugs for so long. It made me a target for traffickers. I was easily accessible. I had no self-worth. I had not a shred of self-esteem at all. It took me a long time to get to the point to where I was done, and then eventually I got arrested. I was one of the hopeless varieties that a lot of people said they probably would never get out, and I did. I see somebody who was in a lot of pain. What would you say to that girl now? I don't know. I would tell her there's hope. I went into a treatment facility on my own, and then shortly after, while I was in a program in downtown Chicago, I went into Naomi's house. Naomi's house is just so comfortable. It was definitely like a home that I had always dreamed of that never thought that I would have. Every woman in there just showed so much grace and was so welcoming. What I would come from was complete hate, constantly having to watch my back. And I come into this house of women who just want to build me up. And I can tell they're walking with the Lord. 
it showed me a way that was so foreign to me, but was what God wanted for me all along. I would say when I came to Naomi's house, my relationship with him got really strong. There's devotions in the morning. Every woman in there, the shift supervisors, have all been instrumental in my journey with Christ. I went back to school while I was still in Naomi's house. I was able to accumulate 22 credits while I was there. I got my certified recovery support specialist certificate. I was a case aide, basically hung out with the clients and just like took them to lunch and dinner and I'm able to be an advocate for some of them. The way it makes me feel when I'm able to help other women is the most immense amount of joy I have ever felt. And I believe that I went through everything I went through so that I can come back and help people that are just like me. And because of Naomi's house, I get the opportunity to do that every day. How have I seen God working in my story? <laughs> Whew. He's so good. He's all over my story. He's everywhere. My whole story has just been tailor fit better than I could have ever imagined. That's been my whole like experience since I decided to surrender to him. Okay. Oh, okay. I got it. All right. The year of the Lord's favor, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn and provide to those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Well, that's why we do serve the world. We uh, watched that video at our preaching team meeting this past Thursday morning, seven of us in the room, and um, Stetson Butler, who leads that team, showed us the video. And, and, and when it was over, he said, well, what do you guys think? And none of us could talk. And Pastor Jeff was pretending he had allergies because we were all... <laughs> That's just one story, Becky's story. Her mentor at Naomi's house, by the way, was Kim Erickson, who leads our women's ministries here at Chapel Street now. That's just one story, but that's why we do serve the world. We have, we have partners, many partners. We had 36 partners last year, and we are anticipating uh, partners again this coming year. So we're using this Advent season to raise money for serve the world in general. So we're ready to respond to ministries like that and needs that come up. So we're trying to raise $300,000 uh, during the Advent season. So if you would like to be a part of that, you can go to our website, click the Serve the World button, and give that way. You can just, or you can write a check and write in the memory, the memo line, Serve the World, STW, drop it in the boxes. And we just thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Well, years ago, I heard 
the story, probably an apocryphal story, uh, about a rich Texas oil man who wanted to be buried in his gold Cadillac. Now, this isn't the guy, I don't think, but it shows you that people still do this kind of stuff now. This is an actual burial of somebody in a car. But this, this guy, this Texas oil man, bought something like 12 burial plots to make sure he had room for his car and for himself. And so when he finally died, his family and friends gathered in the cemetery, and an industrial crane lowered the gold Cadillac down into the 12 burial plots with his body propped up in the driver's seat. All went into the grave, and at that moment... One of the onlookers was heard to whisper to himself, Whew, man, that's really living. <laughs> We're in the third week of our Advent series now called Light and Life. We're spending four weeks in just the first 14 verses of the Gospel of John, looking at four great images or themes he uses to describe Jesus. Word, light, life, and glory. We began with John pointing to Jesus as the eternal Word of God. Last week we looked at Jesus as the light of the world. Today John tells us that Jesus is life. Now remember that John tells us the whole point, his whole purpose in writing his gospel is about life. In John chapter 20, toward the end of his gospel, he writes, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. Now, today we dive into what it means to have life in his name. We're going to read again uh, the first 14 verses of chapter 1 of John's Gospel. You can follow along on the screens, or if you have your Bible, you can open up John chapter 1. Let me read these verses for us, and then we'll focus in. John writes In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now today we're going to focus, um, as we begin, just on one verse, and it's verse 4, and I ask you to read this with me out loud together. Let's put it on the screens. Ready? Let's begin. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now the question today is, what does John mean by life? Now, in the ancient Greek language, there were three possible words John could have used for the English word life. He could have used the word bios, from which we get our English word biology, which refers to physical, biological life. He could have used suke, from which we get our word psychology, which refers to the psychological life of the human soul, the mind, the emotion, the will. Or he could have used zoe, 
which is a bigger word, a word that includes both bios and suke, but it means more than that. It includes life now and the life to come, and it points us to the uncreated and eternal life of God, and that's the word John uses here for life, zoe. But before we talk about what he means by that word, I want to take a little bit of a side trip just for a minute or two into bios or biological life. John's already told us that Jesus is the creator of all things. Back to verse 3, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now we can assume by saying this, John is telling us that Jesus is the creator or the originator of all life. Now if we go back to Genesis, uh, we see the progression of the creation story. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, God spoke his word, let there be light, and there was light. And if we read on in Genesis 1, we see that after light, there comes dry land, vegetation, sea life, land creatures culminating with the creation of human life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now one of the great questions in the scientific world is, what was the origin of life? When and how did life begin? Now I'm not a scientist, but I I read occasionally. And there are really only two options to answer those questions. On the one hand, there is the option that physical energy and matter in the universe gave rise to, through blind and random chance, life. Now this is what's called the neo-Darwinian theory of the evolution of life, which begs two questions. First of all, if energy and matter gave birth to life, where did the original energy and matter come from? And how exactly did energy and matter create life? Even the most brilliant of secular scientists today have acknowledged that these two questions pose a problem. First, because there just has not been enough time, and most astrophysicists will admit this, There just has not been enough time for random processes to produce complex life. Hasn't been enough time of just random atoms bouncing around to produce life. And secondly, uh, science has discovered exactly zero evidence so far that life can come from that which is not life. No evidence that that's ever happened or ever can happen. But there's a second option. The second option is that a pre-existent and eternal life form that is an intelligent, purposeful, all-power creator gave rise to all energy, all matter, and all life. And this is the biblical view. Now, many people in our culture completely discount the biblical view as a hopeless fable, as a childlike fable that can't possibly be true. But If we think about it, in light of those two questions, where did matter and energy come from, and how does life come from nothing, we realize that this view actually makes sense of what science already knows. That is, the universe had a beginning, and something cannot come 
from nothing. And that life can only come from life. And this, I believe, is what John is saying in these simple words, but profound sentences. In the beginning was the Word. Through Him, all things were made. In Him was life, and this life was the light of all mankind. John Dixon, the Australian scholar who teaches at Wheaton College these days and who preaches occasionally here at South Street, um, at at Chapel Street Church, uh, hosts a podcast, a very good podcast, called Undeceptions. And in a recent episode, he interviews a, a man named Dr. John Swinton, who is a professor in the School of Divinity, History, and Philosophy at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Brilliant guy. In that interview, Dr. Swinton said, there are four great, great questions of human life. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? And why? Most philosophers would agree. I believe John answers all four questions when he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Because John describes that life in three ways. First, uh, new life, then abundant life, and thirdly, eternal life. First, new life. We love to sing certain songs this time of year, uh, carols, great traditional hymns, and we're going to sing a bunch of them this afternoon. Hope you're able to come out and join us and bring your cookies. Um, one of the classic favorites, of course, is Away in a Manger. Originally written in 1837, it's been a children's favorite for just about two centuries. And of course, it tells the story of the birth of Jesus. But I do have a small problem with the lyrics. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. No problem with that. The stars in the sky look down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus sleep on the hay. No problem with that. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, the little Lord Jesus Whoa, time out. Got a problem. Nope. You bring a cow into a baby's room, and the cow moos. The baby cries, all right? The baby cries. I have a problem with that. Christmas is the remembrance of the celebration of a birth story, a birth story that began with a miraculous conception, but when the Word became flesh, it happened through an ordinary human birth, complete, I believe, with a crying baby boy. The birth of Jesus was about new life, new biological life, as is every human birth. Your birth, my birth, the birth of our children, the birth of our grandchildren, new biological life. But Jesus' birth was more than that because he came to bring a new kind of life. If we jump ahead in John's Gospel, just a couple of chapters, to John chapter 3, we read this beautiful story of a late-night conversation. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now just a word about Nicodemus. He was a very religious man, probably a good man by all accounts. He treasured and observed God's law, and he comes to Jesus by night, sort of in secrecy, because he's looking for something. He senses something, and he wants to talk to Jesus about it. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
The phrasing there could also be translated born from above. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now this is an educated man, a moral man, a religious man. And he comes to Jesus looking for something that I believe is kind of missing in his life, and he's curious about Jesus. But what Jesus says to him is so shocking, so surprising, that he fails to understand. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you don't need more moral advice. Nicodemus, you don't need to learn how to be more religious. You don't need to be a better version of yourself. You need to be born again. You need a complete reboot of everything. The Christian faith is not about self-improvement. The gospel, the Christian faith is not about you or me being a little bit better versions of ourselves, sort of clean up our lives around the edges. The Christian faith is about death and resurrection. What does it mean to be born again? Peter says it this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So to be born again is to receive new hope through the resurrection life of Jesus. Now, why would this be necessary? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So to be born again is to understand and accept that you were dead. Not you weren't quite as good a person as you wished you could be. You were dead. I was dead. And that we are made alive through the grace of Christ. So new life means at least two things. First, it means to receive a new heart through the forgiveness of sin. Later in 1 John, John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's new heart. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So just as the physical heart is the center of biological life, so the spiritual heart, that is the center of who we are as human beings, our minds, our emotions, our will, is the center of spiritual life and is made new through the forgiveness of sin, is purified through the grace of Christ. Secondly, to be born again is to receive new identity by being adopted into God's family. If we look at the verses we read today, John 1, verse 12, we read, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. 
What does John mean by the right to become children of God? He's saying that through believing and receiving Jesus, more on that in just a few moments, we are born again with a new heart and new identity. Now, what, why does new identity matter? Well, for this reason. If all we are as human beings is bios, remember that word? It means biological life. If all we are is a collection of random atoms, molecules, flesh, and bone, that we've been assembled simply by the random forces of nature and the forces of the universe, then this life, bios, is all we are and all we have and all that we can hope for. This physical life. And if our identity, our value, how we think of ourselves, is anchored in bios life, for example, in our health, in our abilities, in our work, in our accomplishments, even in our families, then inevitably as we begin to lose these capacities, we lose our identity and we have no value. But if instead we are born of God, born from above, born again, then we are more than the sum total of our biology. We share in the zoe, the life of God himself. He tells us who we are. He tells us where we came from. He tells us where we're going. He tells us why we are here. In in 2 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. That's what happened in that video when Becky burned that old picture of herself. The new has come, the old is dead and gone. In Christ we have new life, new heart through the forgiveness of sin, new identity by becoming children of God. And this new life is also, John says, an abundant life. That's the second thing today, abundant life. How many of you have ever heard of uh, Shohei Otani? How many baseball fans here, all right? He's the Japanese baseball star that just signed a contract last week worth $700 million over 10 years. Try to wrap your mind around that. That's to play baseball, okay? But compare that to singer and cultural phenomenon Taylor Swift, who is currently doing a worldwide tour of concerts, 151 concerts on five continents over 18 months. She earns $13 million per concert. That's after she pays everyone. Which means over that time, she will make $700 million in less than one year to sing songs, to entertain. Now, while you're trying to wrap your mind around that, consider Elon Musk. Uh, An entrepreneur, businessman, considered to be the richest man in the world, now estimated to have a net worth of $245 billion dollars which means that if the market goes up by one-third of 1%, he can earn $700 million in one day. Do you know that how long it would take him to spend his money if he spent $1 million a day? Over 600 years. And he would have, he would have several million left over to do whatever you do when you're 600 years old, right? Now, I mentioned all this mind-blowing wealth Only for one reason. Because in our culture, in our affluent North American culture, when we hear the phrase abundant life, we almost automatically translate it to life of abundance. 
don't we? We think of having an abundance of wealth, an abundance of material things. I read where comedian Jay Leno has 180 cars and 160 motorcycles. But John and Jesus are talking about a different kind of wealth, a different kind of life, a different kind of abundance. If we go to John chapter 10, we read this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life, the word there is zoe, and have it abundantly. Now the word translated as abundantly is the Greek word perisos. It means greater than, excessive, more than expected, overflowing. So what does Jesus mean by abundant life? Well, I think he means more than we can cover in a whole series of sermons, but let me just focus on two things. I think first he means it's a life of eternal purpose. An abundant life is a life of eternal purpose. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now that's new life. That's being born again. That's new heart, new identity. That's what Paul just said. But he continues, And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's new and eternal purpose. You are recreated in Christ for a new and an eternal purpose. This past week I got a text on my phone from a man named David Nelms, who's the founder of a ministry called the Timothy Initiative, who has been a Serve the World partner of ours church for the last couple of years. It's a church planting ministry that's planting thousands of churches all throughout Africa, Asia, and um, the Middle East. I've traveled twice with, uh, three times, two or three times with them now, both to Africa and the, Nepal. He sent me this photo, which was taken in Nepal. It's a little hard to see, but the man at the far right edge of the photo wearing the hat uh, is 91 years old. He became a follower of Jesus just two years ago at the age of 89. And in those two years, he has helped 24 former Hindu and Buddhist people come to faith in Christ. And he baptized 17 of them. He is now teaching and discipling all the people in this photo out of his own home. Now, you need to know the average income in Nepal is $7,000 a year. But I would submit to you that this man's life is far more abundant than the life of Elon Musk, because this life has an eternal purpose. The second thing I would say is that abundant life is a life of joy. I think this is what Jesus is teaching us, a life of joy. In John 15, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I think it's kind of a tragedy sometimes in our faith that we don't that the first word we associate with Jesus isn't often joy. That's what he says, that my joy will be in you, and your joy will be full. Now, the word translated for joy is kara in Greek, which is related to the word for grace, 
which is charis. And Peter explains the relationship of joy and grace in 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this leads us to the third way that John describes the life of Jesus, and that it is eternal life. It's new life, it's abundant life, and it's eternal life. It's all the same life, and they're all related. But let's talk about eternal life. I did a little research this week, and I found out that the oldest living person in America is a woman named Edith Cesarelli, who lives in California, born February 8th, 1908. She was 115 years and 310 days old. She'll be 116 in February. But the oldest person in the world is believed to be Maria Baranas from Spain, who is 116 years old and 281 days. Both these women are still living. Did you know that millions of dollars are being invested right now into anti-aging research in the quest to extend human life. For example, billionaire Peter Thiel has poured millions of his own fortune into what is called the Methuselah Foundation. This is a real thing. They have a goal of making 90 the new 50 by the year 2030. Well, and if they succeed, and if I make it to 2030, I'll be 74, which means I'll really just be 34. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that, right? <laughs> Mr. Thiel has a stated goal. His goal is to live to at least, be at least 120 years old. My question for Mr. Thiel then would be, well, I'd have, I'd have a lot of questions, but my first question would be, great, good for you. Then what? Then what? Because we all know that however long you can extend it, biological life has limitations. Psalm 90 says the years of our life are 70, or even if by reason of strength, 80 or 120. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. In other words, biological life has an expiration date. Human mortality rate hovering right around 100%. At every graveside ceremony, that's ever done anywhere. At every funeral service, there's one question that everyone is thinking, but is rarely spoken out loud, except at a Christian funeral. And that is, what's next? What happens now? John is saying that Jesus is life, that he offers new life, abundant life, and eternal life. In John chapter 3, Verse 16, a verse I think I probably knew before I could recite the alphabet. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In John 11, just before raising Lazarus from the dead, we read, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. John, writing a letter Later in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. We are born again into new life, abundant life, and eternal life. Zoe. 
the life of God. Question, how do we receive? How do we get it? How do we know this Zoe, eternal life? Back to our passage we're studying right now. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I highlighted three words there. Believe, receive, become. To believe means to understand and agree that Jesus is who John says he is. That Jesus is the eternal word of God made flesh who died and rose again, who offers new life by his grace. We must believe. But more than that, we must also receive, he says. Different word. Receive means to welcome. In this context, it means to personally invite Jesus to do what only he has the authority to do. That is to forgive your sin, to give you a new heart, to give you a new identity in him, to become the Lord of your life, and as Becky said in the video, to surrender your life to him. And then we become children of God with an eternal inheritance. Now notice, we can believe the right things about Jesus. I believe it's possible to believe things about him without ever receiving him. We can know things about him, give intellectual assent to things about him, but never receive. That is, welcome him so that he becomes your Lord your Savior, your identity, your hope, your life. To become a child of God means to receive an eternal inheritance, which the Bible describes as eternal life in new spiritual bodies, in the new heaven and new earth, which Jesus, which Jesus comes to recreate all things. And that's a whole other series of sermons. I want to end with a story I came across this week. Some of you who are historians of the 19th century might recognize the name Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll was an American lawyer, writer, orator from the 19th century, became famous just around the Civil War time, later, a little bit after that. Raised in a Christian home with a father who was a minister, but walked away from the faith because of things he saw in the church, became famous as a critic of Christianity. A brilliant man, wrote all kinds of things, spoke all over the country, uh, who said things like, the Bible is a delusion, the Bible is a fable, an obscenity, and a lie. He was often called by the nickname the Great Agnostic. Ingersoll died suddenly from heart failure in July of 1899 at the age of 65. His family was shocked. His wife was devastated. In fact, so devastated, she refused to part with his body, keeping it in her home for several days until health concerns demanded it be removed. And then his remains were cremated. But here's the thing I noticed. The announcement for his eventual funeral included the note, there will be no singing. Hmm. There will be no singing. How sad is that? But how could there be? 
How could there be singing? Mr. Ingersoll believed that biological life was the only kind of life that existed. It begins and it ends, nothing more. So how could there be singing? The tragedy of Robert Ingersoll was not that he died from heart failure at the age of 65. The tragedy is that his loved ones had no hope. No hope. And therefore, nothing to sing about. But the great good news of Christmas, the great good news of the Word become flesh, that a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord, is that there will be singing. If we jump ahead to the book of Revelation, written also by the Apostle John at the end of his life, a vision that the Spirit of God gives him as he stares, looks into heaven itself. And all of this, a lot of this is, is symbolic language, but listen to what he says. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders, and they sang a new song. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and with a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So yes, there will be singing. For those who believe and receive Jesus, there will be singing. Because there will be life. I want to go back to Away in the Manger just to be fair. The last verse. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and take us to heaven to live with thee there. And take us to heaven to live with thee there. I've got no problem with that. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, how we thank you for your word today. We thank you that the great story we celebrate during the season of Advent isn't just the story of a miraculous birth. It's the story of life, life with a capital L, life that's new, life that is abundant, life that's eternal. In your birth, there's the promise. of eternal life. So may we today believe, and not just believe, but receive and welcome you as Lord and Savior, our hope and our life. And, my, and, and in believing, as John says, may we have life in your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Just before the benediction, remind you that we'll be back here at 3 o'clock this afternoon for our carol sing, and it'll be a great time for all. We'll have plenty of cookies and hot chocolate afterwards. So invite a friend to come share that time with you. Hope you'll, we'll see you then. Our benediction comes from the New Testament letter called Jude, verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great day.